hello 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 and welcome back to yet another episode of absolutely nobody's favorite podcast that is of course annoying question boy uh i am your host annoying question boy uh today we are today is october 26 2020 and uh We are going to talk about some things that have been happening uh, across the world, um, including places like Bolivia, uh, in Chile, and then uh, just kind of talk about what's going on here in America. We're only uh, about a week out from elections, uh, which has, I would assume, a good portion of this country just absolutely consumed with utter and... uh, encapsulating confusion so yeah um yeah how's everybody doing hope everyone is well um i'm doing well Uh, i'm working a lot which is good i guess uh because i need money um but Besides that, it obviously has taken away from my ability to do podcasts. It's taken away my ability to uh, sit and read and research and everything like that. So it it does come at a cost, uh, literally and figuratively. But I I try to read at work and I like kind of you know read news articles and shit like that there when I got nothing else to do. I listen to podcasts and stuff when there's nobody in the store. So it's not, you know, a complete loss of time, but, you know, y- y'all know how it is to labor. <clears throat> but, yes, yeah, so I uh, hope everybody's doing well. Um, one group that is, uh, well, hasn't been doing well and still really, honestly, is not doing well, uh, just kind of had, like, a cool thing happen, uh, is the uh, citizens of Bolivia. Um, so if you are new to the podcast or if you're just new to what's going on in Bolivia uh I'll dive into a uh like a five to ten minute uh brief synopsis um so if you know what's been going on in Bolivia skip ahead about like five six minutes and you'll probably find the continuation of the actual conversation so Brief synopsis. So, about a year ago now, almost to the dot, uh, it was election time in Bolivia. And one of the uh, candidates that was running for president of Bolivia was the now three-term serving president, Evo Morales, uh, who was the, well, was and is the first uh, indigenous president ever of Bolivia. Um, and, uh, I, I can't remember who else was running, probably Carlos Mesa, um, a few other people, um, and when Evo Morales was announced as having won the election, uh, the OAS, also, uh, known as the Organization of American States, which is a... United States created organization that's recognized by the NATO countries as having uh, sovereign power to kind of police <coughs> elections uh, across the world. Um, which I don't know who died and made us uh, king police or whatever, but like we have absolutely no right to do that. Um, but we do it, and so when Abel Morales won, which would have been his fourth term, uh, they claimed that it was a fraudulent election. They claimed that, you know, some kind of fraud. <clears throat> this was predicated on the fact that earlier in the year, uh, the Constitution of Bolivia was amended to allow, I believe... It was either to allow a fourth term as president or no term limits as president. So that having happened the year of the election gave the OAS all the, you know, quote unquote evidence they needed to claim fraud. So, of course, 
uh, one way or another, the United States supported uh, a coup in Bolivia, um, as well as countries such as Canada, uh, Britain, France, and other NATO powers. Um, and they essentially sponsored a military junta, uh, which was followed by the interim presidency uh, by a self-appointed Janine Añez. Uh, Janine Añez, prior to this, really had no true uh, existence in politics. I believe she was a lawyer. Uh, she came from kind of the, I don't want to say upper middle class, because that doesn't really exist in Bolivia the same way it exists here in America. So it would be kind of misleading to call them that. But she came from the bourgeois, like, um, class. Uh, and to an empty parliament building after her cohort, uh, I think his name is Friedrich Camacho. Um, I could, that could be wrong. His last name is Camacho. Uh, ran into the parliament building carrying a Bible claiming that the indigenous gods had no more uh, claim to that land. Um, a lot of what Janine Añez did, as well as uh, Camacho and the conservative party, the far-right party within Bolivia did, uh, in the first you know few months of their reign, was completely strip away uh, most of the rights that the indigenous of the area, which make up about 80% of the population, <coughs> Uh, they stripped them of a lot of rights that they had only recently just gained under Evo Morales. Um, they also demonized the rituals and practices of the indigenous and claimed them to be uh, sacrilegious or devil-worshipping uh, practices, um, therefore allowing the narrative against the indigenous to be portrayed to the public to you know kind of sponsor public interest in the actions that were taken against immigrant farmers and uh or not immigrant farmers excuse me indigenous farmers and indigenous people uh generally uh, this came uh as well as did the denationalization of many of the countries industries including uh the lithium mines and the lithium um what's the word i'm looking refining uh process within the country only a few months prior to this uh bolivia produced their very own uh electric car the first one ever produced uh in bolivia in Bolivian factories by Bolivian lithium that is refined by uh, Bolivians in Bolivia. Um, and to those of you who don't really understand why this is important, um, we're going to get into it a little bit later. But um, so this obviously would make places such as the United States and the capitalists within uh, all the NATO powers really um, this would this would influence them to want to disallow that from happening because you know companies such as Tesla uh, have a lot of, a lot to lose if Bolivia is to nationalize uh, their lithium. Uh, Elon Musk is out in I think it's Nevada or Arizona trying to mine because he thinks you can just like pull lithium right out of the rocks. Um, but we won't go into him. So this comes directly before COVID-19 hit. So you saw a huge economic collapse uh, right before the onslaught that is and uh, seems to seems as if it will continue to be, um, which is COVID-19. So because of privatization, you saw a lot of people lose jobs. You saw a lot of people lose a source of income uh, and provision because a lot of the nationalized industry within Bolivia provides for these people um, in you know 
welfare-esque programs if you want to uh, make them parallel to America. But, <clears throat> so, COVID-19 hits, you had a huge economic collapse, and the government that is led by Janine Añez and uh, the far-right party and the military within uh, Bolivia has absolutely no idea how to handle this. So, basically what they do is they... Uh, make it illegal essentially they instill a uh, curfew so most bolivians weren't able to leave their homes and because of that obviously they could not go to work um and because the state did not provide any source of income or provisions during this time uh many bolivians have died many bolivians have died of many different causes whether starvation um a covid 19 you know, uh, a, a plethora of things. <clears throat> Police killings. Um, so, obviously, this is a problem. Um, and the election, I believe, was supposed to... Because Janine Añez was just an interim president. This was supposed to lead to an election earlier in this year. But it was postponed multiple times um, until, basically, they had tried everything that they could to uh, ban the MAS party, which is the movement towards socialism party within Bolivia that uh, Evo Morales uh, belongs to. Um, this party was uh, persecuted and its members were beaten, tortured, um, some were even killed. Uh, Evo Morales, including... Uh, included had uh, his home raided after he fled to Mexico as well as did uh, many other mas uh, not even just members but just uh, sympathizers or supporters um, and you saw a lot of political uh, persecution during this time uh, and then of course you know you had the election being postponed multiple times um, and then finally just this past week, we uh, had the election. Um, we saw a 55.1% majority uh, win for the MAS party and their uh, nominee, who is uh, Luis Arce, um, who was uh, the econo economic advisor uh, to the Morales presidency. So um, that's obviously huge. Um, you also saw the Moss Party, I believe, take uh, the majority in their other houses of government, um, which is, you know, also huge. Um, but this, as many people on social media have pointed out to me when I posted, posted about this, uh, you know, kind of celebrating this, um, Bolivia has a long way to go. Not only uh, are Bolivians now you know stripped a lot of their workers rights um and saw a lot of their industry and jobs disappear because of covid19 but um also just less than a week ago uh the anya's uh administration took out a sizable 300 million dollar loan from uh the imf bank um which is a massive massive debt uh, and weight for a country that essentially has to completely rebuild their entire country uh, from the ground up due to the absolute uh, destruction of their economy and industry and infrastructure as a whole. Uh, we know that this is not new. Uh, during the Carlos Mesa presidency, who uh, was actually the runner-up with a 22% uh, uh, vote, um, followed by, I can't remember who the third one was, it was their conservative party, but Janine Añez ended up dropping out because she wasn't even going to see like 4% of the vote. She, they, everybody fucking hated her. So, you know, a win in Bolivia, but... A, a win uh, kneecapped by a lot of 
upcoming and uh, really, really problematic issues. Um, another huge... Uh, also, um, Evo Morales, as far as I know, is destined to return. Uh, he will not be taking place in government or holding any government position. Uh, he is going to return to his uh, presidency in uh, uh, the uh, six tropical islands. I can't think. I believe that's what they are. Um, I can't think of what the name. Oh, geez. I'm blanking on this. But it's uh, the Cocobamba. I believe, um, excuse me if I'm incorrect, uh, but, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, uh, the unions, um, uh, the, the coca leaf farmers and other agricultural and, uh, industrial union, uh, coalition that Evo Morales is president of, uh, he will be returning to that position, um, but other than that, he, he has said that he plans to hold no uh, government office. So you see a, you know, victory of sorts in Bolivia. Um, this is preceded by a huge win in Chile, uh, the southeastern bordering state uh, of Bolivia. Um, they... Uh, yesterday voted on a referendum to completely uh, scrap the constitution that was drafted under the uh, the coup and dictator dictatorship leadership of uh, General Pinochet uh, and they will be drafting a new one uh, I do not have a whole whole lot of information on what is to follow um like the procedure they plan on taking i wasn't really able to find many articles that discuss this i tried looking up like the process tried googling it um but there was really no information that i could find maybe i wasn't googling well um but this is absolutely huge uh chile was also another rapidly industrializing city or city uh, country during uh, the 70s under President Allende and then you saw the United States sponsored coup which if you guys aren't sensing a pattern yet um, this happens a lot uh, South America Africa, Asia are all wrought with uh, U.S. imperialism, um, so, you know, get used to that, but, uh, this is, uh, like I said, a, a big victory, but again, just like Bolivia, uh, just simply a step towards, uh, true systematic change, which, you know, is necessary to criticize and, uh, not just simply accept and then move on, um, but uh, also at the same time, I feel something that must, you know, should be celebrated. So in that spirit, um, I, I figured we could kind of real briefly before diving into kind of some other stuff, kind of discuss what we here in America can take from this, you know, huge, huge, huge win for socialism huge win for uh workers and indigenous peoples uh in south in south america um what can we take from you know these events uh, and apply within the united states especially um with the upcoming election um my first instinct was to talk about kind of how um uh, unions need to exist in the states we have to kind of assume the same role that Evo Morales did prior to becoming the president which was uh, form uh, unions of all different workers and build the working class solidarity uh, which is absolutely uh, absent 
within the United States in our current moment um, due to many different factors, uh, one being uh, massive separation caused by things such as uh, racism um, that, you know, kind of translates across uh, just the, the, the bourgeois uh, within this country and extends into uh, fellow working class citizens' minds and, and mouths and actions. This, of course, is nothing new. This has always existed uh, within the United States, uh, whether it was uh, the indigenous of this land or uh, immigrants or uh, African Americans or, you know, fill in the blank here. Uh, we've had racism, we've had sexism, we've had all of these isms as long as America has existed because it has been and always will be a, a bourgeois oligarchy. It is not a free state and in order to maintain that bourgeois oligarchy they must uh, divide us, they must uh, have us fighting with one another um, and separated to a point where we cannot uh, amass a, a true movement against the powers that be. That is exactly why uh, these things exist uh, so deeply within the structure of our very society. But uh, it is not impossible to hope for unions and, and you know, the solidarity and breaking down of walls and barriers between one another based on things such as race, gender, sexuality, whatever you want to, you know, say is separating you and someone else. Um, but I think due to a, a, a few different things, um, that probably will not be the easiest way to go about this. So... Of course, we all know that there is a huge anti-union sentiment within the United States. Uh, there has been for a long time since the, uh, the installation of neoliberalism. Um, we have seen a massive um, technological advancement which has led to an automation of the work, uh, the work field and the, the means of production are being not only uh, collected, but also used and sold for a profit all through ways of automation, um, taking away, you know, necessary things such as wages for many workers. Uh, we won't get into that, but what we will get into is just uh, the simple fact that this has led to anti-union sentiment because you know, whether or not you have enough automation, you still need workers. You cannot, you know, we are not at a point where we can run simply on machines. Uh, people have to repair the machines. People have to manufacture the machines. You know what I'm saying? Um, so because the, that has not been fully automated, we still see some power, some bargaining chips within the hands of the working class. Um, and this obviously is a tool that, uh, we are not supposed to know that we have, uh, not for nothing, but during the pandemic, I kept telling people at my job, you know, if we just don't show up, they can't work. Or I should say, if we don't work, they can't operate, um, you know, a strike pretty obvious idea during a pandemic wherein you're not receiving anything other than an extra dollar an hour in your paycheck uh as uh, e uh what's the word i'm looking for um reparations for having to work during a global health crisis and pandemic um but of course the the anti-striking, the anti-workers' rights, the anti-union sentiment that exists within this uh, neoliberal capitalist uh, bourgeois state um, has once again 
uh, thwarted what could be a, a genuine moment wherein people could receive things such as a, a livable wage. Um, I know for a fact that I had to watch almost a half an hour on anti-union videos when I worked at Lowe's, um, one of which kind of told you basically that if you hear anyone talking about their wages, if you hear anybody talking about organizing, uh, report them directly to your store manager um, and they will be dealt with. Um, so, you know, this idea of worker versus worker violence, as, as I'm going to call it, um, has been manifested within the working class since the uh, creation of stores such as Walmart or Lowe's who employ such massive amounts of workers who see such massive amounts of profit that they could not afford to have striking workers. They could not afford to pay their workers livable wages because at the end of the day, the capitalist um, profits on the wages that belong to you uh, in which are earned through the exchange of commodities uh, that you produce, that you manufactured, that you, you know, created, and then it became the capitalist's property, which was sold for profit, which we received a minimal percentage of, um, even though the capitalist had no part other than providing the uh, means of production. The, um, the problem with this system is that eventually, with private ownership, you will see a uh, fall uh, within profits because, you know, say for example, you have a, a, a company that can make TVs in four hours. Let's say, every, you know, every factory that makes TVs makes TVs in four hours. Let's say someone like uh, Sony, uh, actually, I'm going to scratch that. Let's say someone like Phony, uh, a, a TV manufacturing and uh, producing company, uh, comes up with a new technology that helps them to manufacture TVs in two hours, ultimately splitting the amount of time needed to manufacture one TV in half and also doubling the amount of TVs they can sell which allows them to undercut the prices of fellow TV manufacturers uh, and uh, outsell them. And then eventually, of course, the other TV manufacturers will catch up one way or another, uh, and then someone else will do the same thing. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rapid process that uh, many, including Karl Marx, have theorized will lead to an absolute uh, eradication of surplus value, which will lead to the destruction of our economy, essentially. Um, and the only thing that can save that is um, nationalizing of really the industry for now, and eventually, uh, at least in my mind, an eradication of capital as uh, it exists today. Um, we know, obviously, the end goal within Karl Marx's mind, or rather, not the end goal, but the, uh, the ending moment, what uh, all of this is leading to, you know, the process of going from feudalism to capitalism, and then, as he theorized, capitalism to socialism, and then eventually socialism to communism, which is, uh, according to Karl Marx, where we inevitably will end up. Um, because we know that Karl Marx had it in his mind that this was where things were going. Uh, he theorizes that, um, you know, eventually profit margins will fall. Uh, huge corporations will no longer be able to make a profit, therefore not able to pay wages, and therefore putting everyone out of a job, eventually seeing the uh, collapsing of the corporations, leaving absolutely um, no economy uh, to exist for the working class. So how can we take from what happened in Bolivia, knowing all of this information, uh, and apply to America that isn't workers' unions? Um, because you know the, these these institutions are not as central to the working class 
uh, to society as they once were in this country and as they are in places such as Bolivia. Um, so uh, what I've kind of been toying with in my own head, excuse me here while I um, drink a glass of water, um, what I've kind of been toying with in my head uh, is a kind of a plan to work rather than in the workplace uh, within your local community. So, I mean, many of us live in bigger cities, which will make things like this a bit more complicated. But some of us, including myself, live in, you know, not rural communities, but like small cities. Um, I've been told time and time again by my coworker that my hometown is actually not a small city. It's actually one of the largest, metro it's actually the largest metropolitan, metropolitan city within New York. Um, but it, it still like has a small local community, um, mentality and like politics. So I was kind of toying with this in my head that we really don't have like any outreach organizations within my hometown. Um, we have like a rescue mission and we have, you know, some churches and stuff in the area that do outreach. But we don't have a community-based, as far as I'm aware of, I could be wrong, um, outreach organization, at least a large enough one that I'm aware of. Um, I, I would like to change this, or if one already exists, I would like to, you know, kind of work with them in evolving that, because I think that building community within our small towns, especially after seeing how uh, national politics and national government has kind of led us astray in this massive country that is the United States. Uh, small towns and small cities uh, are very necessary to maintain in order to actually see changes within our material conditions. Um, so I've been kind of toying with it in my head that I want to start or as I said like if one already exists help out a uh, local like outreach organization and through that kind of build ties within the community um, and I want it to do, to be explicitly an, an outreach first organization because I feel like especially within my community which is very conservative very Republican um, if you were to, you know, take your first step with politics, um, you won't, s I, I don't believe you will see uh, the reaction and, um, you know, uh, progress within the city that you would need. So I think first you have to start as an outreach thing. I think a big thing in our area that is necessary is affordable housing. Um, we have these two new huge apartment complexes which are being built that are charging $13.50 and $11.50 uh, a month for rent in uh, rooms as small as in the $11.50 one, a studio apartment. Um, this, of course, is not affordable by any means by anyone that lives within my my hometown um most of our jobs in our area are very much uh corporate you know we have all your fast food chains we have places like price chopper uh walmart we had herb phillipson's that's gone now uh you have places like dunkin donuts um lowe's you know all these I don't want to say massive corporations, but all these uh, uh, chain stores, you know, not local businesses. And because of this, you see a uh, removal of all, basically, all the funds that w could be being divested back into the community uh, leave the community in the hands of companies like Walmart or, you know, Lowe's or Big Lots or McDonald's, whatever. Not only... Uh, does this happen because, you know, they're the ones that are profiting off of uh, our local community's surplus value? Uh, 
But on top of that, that's because they are the only uh, places where uh, consumption can be had, where uh, exchange can be had, and therefore they are seeing a return on the wages that they paid out to us, therefore ultimately taking all of our money. Um, this, of course, is tied with uh, an awfully written tax code, which uh, disproportionately taxes people who otherwise should not be receiving such high taxes because the way our, our tax code is written, um, I don't really have it in uh, cold uh, black ink, so I don't really know how to explain it uh, specifically. But basically, as I understand it, our tax code is written wherein a lot of our money is taken from our area and given to places like New York City because they are absolutely bankrupt for the same reason that our communities will be absolutely bankrupt in 10 years if they aren't already. So I think something like that, uh, you know, calling for affordable housing, calling for uh, livable wage jobs, calling for, you know, grants and programs wherein we can build a strong local community built around local businesses and local industry. Um, where I grew up used to have a massive uh, copper, uh, what do I want to call it, mill, I think, I think is the proper term, uh, Revere, Revere Copper and Brass. Uh, it was one of the largest of its kind in the area. Uh, and we also had a huge Air Force base, uh, and we still see uh, some remnants of that with the government jobs that it kind of created on our base. Uh, but other than that, most of our jobs are corporations. Uh, this is a problem, of course, because, like I said, it takes our money, our hard-earned money that we are afforded by our capitalist overlords after bullshit taxes and a you know huge profit margin that they collect on and then we see only a minimal percentage of um, that money is also after then taken from us so because of this you're seeing a decline in my local community so I think like building a community based around like things such as affordable housing uh, we also don't have we, like I said, we have the rescue mission, and we have a uh, WIC program. Um, we also have, obviously, you know, our local government assistance program. But I feel like we could have a much better uh, system for food. Um, realistically, uh, in our community, I couldn't even imagine, given all the corporations that exist within our city, we'd probably throw out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food every single month. Uh, that should just be given to people that need food. Um, uh, to those of you who might have listened to my episode, I believe it's two episodes back, where I talked with uh, uh, Matt, uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, I tried to explain to him false scarcity, which he wouldn't let me explain. So basically, real quick, if you don't know what false scarcity is, it's uh, when corporations such as Walmart and other place, uh, wholesale food places, or wholesale markets, should I say, uh, throw out billions of dollars worth of food every single year uh, and then claim that, you know, we are a starving nation um, because of our taxes and bullshit like that. Uh, but it's, also, it's, it's, it's not scarcity. We have the food and we could give it to people. We just don't um, because it's, it's not profitable. Um, yeah, so... A lot of community building needs to be done in this area, and a lot of people need a lot of help. Uh, what was cool was after the George Floyd uh, murder, we saw a super lib like demonstration, but I mean for Rome, a very conservative area. Uh, it, it was cool because, like, uh, you know, we marched around the fort a couple times, chanting and carrying signs and shit, and there was, like, 300 people, so that was cool. Uh, we've also had some anti-police protests outside of the, the police building, if that's what you want to call them. 
but they've all been very, very lib. You know, absolutely nothing was done. Uh, no direct action was done. No, uh, nothing. Nothing was done. And no one was calling for reforms. We were basically just out there yelling uh, people's names who had died. Uh, but, or rather had been murdered, excuse me. Um, yes, yeah, so, like, uh, community's pretty politically and economically bankrupt, uh, and socially bankrupt, so I think that that could be a useful tool. And then, obviously, once tides are built, you start, uh, educating with not only just politics, but really just material conditions, because what a lot of people who would call themselves liberal and uh, also conservatives uh, lack is an acknowledgement of their reality. Because most of what we would call the middle class, which does not exist in this country, um, is equally as poor as you and I in the sense that one, you know, not uh, unseen medical emergency, an accident, uh, really any random expense they weren't expecting higher than $500, most of this country could not afford that. You know, you see 72% to 80%, uh, depending on what statistics you read, uh, claiming that that, that many uh, Americans live paycheck to paycheck, meaning, you know, not getting one of those paychecks could essentially, you know, for a lack of a, a better terms, fuck them. Um, this is not okay. Uh, we have a country that had recently seen 50%, uh, now about, uh, I believe, 38% joblessness. We have some 28 million Americans that are at risk for uh, eviction because no moratoriums were put into place to prevent people from being kicked out on the streets because of the loss of their uh, source of income by a global pandemic during a global pandemic. Um, so yeah, you see that. And you see, uh, with all of this going on, a presidential election. So let, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, so to conclude my point about what can we learn from Bolivia. Uh, we must learn to be organized. We must learn uh, our place in society as well as uh, why we are in that place and uh, why we should not be in that place uh, and how to go about fixing that um, as well as just honestly solidarity. Just um, pure uh, solidarity, solidarity with our, our uh, co- working class people within this country. Um, so yeah, uh, presidential election. I'm not really going to go into like depth about it because we've, you know, I've talked about it a million times. Uh, but today, like I said earlier, is the 26th of October. Uh, the election is on November 3rd. So that is eight days away. Um, I have not voted. Uh, I still don't know what I'm going to do about that. I feel like most people don't really know what they're going to do unless they're like tried and true in the Biden or the, the Trump camp. Um, I'm not going to vote for Bernie Sanders. I'm not doing that shit. I'm, I've said before, and I still might vote for uh, either uh, Howie Hawkins from the Green Party or Gloria Lariva from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, I'll probably, if I do vote, I will probably vote for Gloria Lariva. Uh, and you should join me. Um, that is unsponsored. Uh, although I did just find out, and to those of you listening in my local community, you can join me in knowing that there actually is a PSL location and uh, chapter in Syracuse. Um, which I will be hopefully, uh, conversing with soon. So shout out them, I guess. Uh, yeah, so 
I don't really know what I'm going to do when it comes to voting. I mean, it's not like I'm being offered anything that I want. Um, neither candidate offers the working class anything. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your ideals, your morals, your values. If you are not a, you know, a, a one percenter, shall we say, uh, you are going to see no change in your material conditions with the uh, election of either of the two proposed candidates, uh, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Uh, neither one of them will help you because neither one of them exists to help you. Um, what a lot of people in this country still have yet to understand is uh, the system is has not been corrupted. The, the, what we are seeing happening with uh, politics, economics, uh, and really just our general society in this country, this is not a, a, f uh, a, a fault or a, a misstep or a corruption. This is how this goes this is how this was supposed to go and this is how this will go until we do anything about it um since the the dawning of this nation uh and much prior to that during you know all kinds of different civilizations um there has been and will continue to be one ruling class uh that is not you and i uh, and they not only rule uh, within the government, but they rule, socially speaking, uh, by dominating and hoarding uh, huge sums of capital uh, and cornering markets, uh, disallowing anyone to profit on that. Uh, this, obviously, is a cancer to our society and something we need to eradicate, but many people in this country either, one, don't acknowledge that that shit is happening. Like, nothing's wrong. Why are you guys complaining, America? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, get, I get to eat fucking chocolate-dipped, deep-fried, glazed donuts at my state fair, or at least I used to before I had to wear this damn mask. Um... Yeah, so, like, what could be wrong? I mean, I'm free as hell. Uh, but a lot of people in this country acknowledge that there's wrongs, uh, faults within our society and our government and really just everything to do with our reality, uh, but think that it's due to a impurity within our system, a corruption, if you will, which is caused not by the system itself, uh, but by individuals. Um, which is, you know, extremely analytic in that it is a pattern that continues happening. So, really what's happening is just, um, just awful people happen to end up becoming politicians. Uh, that, that's just how that goes. It's not because the systems and institutions, uh, that exist within our country, within our government, and our upper echelons of our economy and our society are built specifically for, by, and to promote the existence of uh, bourgeois uh, elitism. Um, that definitely is not why this keeps happening. But, uh, yeah, so basically, all I really have to say about the election is I really hope, like, we get a true October surprise and, like, one of them fucking just croaks. Like... I, I mean, as much as I would rather have a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump instead of a Kamala Harris or a Mike Pence, um, it would still be funny. You know what I mean? And I'm kind of at the point, uh, as I feel a lot of people are, where like national politics and really just like all that bourgeois uh, bullshit, I, I, I don't really find a whole lot of interest in other than the sake of commentary. But uh, I, I am well aware that I will have absolutely no influence on it personally until I uh, am organized with a, a group or mass large enough to uh, affect change, which is obviously the goal. Um, but until then, I mean, really, it makes no difference one way or another for me uh, because I am a white male. Um, which may be a privileged thing to say. I might get some liberals on here uh, 
you know, mad that I'm not voting for Biden because at least he's not as bad as Donald Trump. But, I mean, if, if you guys think that Joe Biden is going to be pulling any fucking strings when he's president, you're, you're just moronic. Um, the people that have created Joe Biden and have paid for him to get to where he is uh, most certainly are equally as bad as Donald Trump because they are his peers, um, as is Joe Biden. Um, yeah, uh, this whole Donald Trump is the worst thing to ever happen to America bullshit is getting old and you guys need to grow the fuck up. Um, I understand why some might vote for Biden, even a lot of leftists are saying uh, vote for Biden, people like Angela Harris. Angela Harris, Angela Davis, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, that fucking YouTuber person, I don't, uh, Counterpoints, I think her YouTube name is, um, like, they're all saying, like, vote for Biden, uh, actually, correction, uh, if I'm to be fully correct, based on the previous, the latest tweet, uh, Counterpoints actually only explicitly expressed that they had voted for Joe Biden. Not that you should. Um, some people interpreted the fact that they were saying that they had as kind of a uh, long, you know, roundabout way of essentially saying vote for Biden. But that that's, you know, he said, she said bullshit. So I don't really know why anyone's paying. And really, who gives a fuck what they say? I mean, n not for nothing, the left is not like an organized coalition wherein our uh, allegiances to some people that are pr proposed to be, you know, uh, leading leftists like Angela Davis or Noam Chomsky. Like, who the fuck cares what they say, um, realistically? Uh, it, no one should influence what you, your decision-making is other than those that you allow to influence you because you agree with their opinions. Uh, you sh no form of voting... Uh, guilt should exist because it's stupid and pointless and also gay. Um, that's right, I said it. Uh, if you vote shame, you're gay. And I mean that not in the cool 2020 TikTok, uh, like, gay, but I mean that in, like, the mid-90s, like, just starting to be an incorrect term, uh, offensive version of gay. Uh, which is not homophobic at all. Um, because uh, I said so. Um, so yeah, moving on. Um, am I going to keep that in? Probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like moving on. Um, really, the only thing that I had left to discuss was uh, kind of like a, a, a weird advertisement, um, which I hope doesn't like make me look like a dweeb in the future but uh yeah so i've been listening to podcasts called the red nation podcast if you don't listen to it uh you should it is hosted by uh activist nick estes um also uh along with the red nation podcast there's also the red power hour i cannot remember the name of that host uh, and hopefully soon they're trying to raise enough patrons in order to uh, create a third show, which is called uh, Native Reads, where they have uh, indigenous writers interviewing and speaking with other indigenous writers, which is really cool. They've done some bonus episodes on the Red Nation podcast of episodes like that, which is uh, really cool. But uh, I just got the book... Um, I just downloaded Nick Estes's book called uh, Our History is the Future. Um, and I found some, like, I've only read about 40 pages. Uh, this is a commentary on the 2016 Dakota Access Pipeline protests, as well as uh, just a history of resistance in uh, indigenous cultures throughout history. Um but there's there's just some some stuff that I've learned because of this that I, I really otherwise don't think I would have known, um, and I only have 
a two here. Or, I only have two here. But, um... I think these are important to, to know. And then we will uh, discuss afterwards. So, this is, to give context, this is on page 18 of the book, um, where Nick Estes is talking about his and other uh, indigenous activists' uh, action where they went to a mall in Bismarck on Black Friday in 2016 um, to perform a... I believe it was uh, a prayer circle of sorts uh, in order to bring attention back to the indigenous within the area. Um, so there's a context. So it says, so then uh, I'm quoting from the book. This is not my book. This was written by Nick Estes. I assume no rights to any of this. I am just simply quoting it in order to discuss it. There we go. Um, so the next day, Black Friday, we went to the mall in Bismarck, North Dakota. Shoppers, mostly white, flooded the Kirkwood Mall, eager to cash in on holiday discounts. Our plan was to disrupt Black Friday shopping in unison with other Black Friday actions to keep the message of hashtag no dapple, uh, which was the hashtag they used in order to uh, spread awareness uh, about what was happening uh, in uh, North Dakota. Uh, so, uh, to keep the message of hashtag no dapple in the news and the fire burning in people's hearts and minds. Back at camp, I had run into a childhood friend, Michael, and his partner, Emma, and we had packed into his car. Through, though traf or through traffic was entirely, through traffic was entirely blocked on Highway 1806, the fastest route to rev reservation border towns. Uh, Mandan and Bismarck, and military checkpoints choked off business to Prairie Nights Casino, a major employee in the reservation and source of revenue for Standing Rock, and hampered residents' access to off-reservation jobs and groceries. This is the part that uh, really struck me, um, because I, I've, I've never contextualized uh, the actions taken against indigenous people of this land in, the, in, in this frame. So he continues and says, what resembled an economic embargo and, in different circumstances, could be considered an act of war against a sovereign nation, added an extra half an hour to 45 minutes to our drive. Um, what I love about Nick Estes, uh, this is the first book by him that I've read, but I've uh, obviously listened to his podcast and I've seen some of his interviews. Uh, he's, he's kind of a... a a uh, I don't want to say a pessimistic, sarcastic person, but he's a very overtly sarcastic person, oftentimes in places where you wouldn't expect it by most. Um, and this is why I love about him. Uh, so, you know, kind of just a sarcastic quip of, uh, you know, saying, uh, and in different circumstances, what could be considered an act of war against the sovereign nation added an extra half an hour to 45 minutes to our drive. Like, the way that he delivers that is very sarcastic, and I love that very much. Um, so, yeah, they go to the mall. Uh, they were obviously, uh, well, not obviously, they were brutalized and beaten by uh, the police within the area. Uh, but they, uh, there is a point where they said, uh, we had flinched each time they nabbed one of us from the crowd, expecting the now familiar chemical shower of CS gas or pepper spray, another odor that was mixed in with the smoke, and that, in a single attack, could dull a person's sense of smell for days, sometimes weeks. But the presence of white shoppers and their families' unwanted collateral damage protected us from being shot or sprayed. Uh, so, uh, uh, in other situations, they're saying, obviously, of course, they would have been used to being uh, pepper sprayed or shot. Um... Another quote, uh, and I know this is kind of like completely jumping to another point in the book, so for that I'm sorry, but another quote was uh, uh, Nick Estes talking about a uh, dam that was put in place in, um, uh, where is it? Uh, the Fort uh, Berthold Indian Reservation. Uh, so, Nick Estes is talking about a uh, dam that was built in the area what cu which cut off the Missouri River, uh, the, the life force of a lot of reservations in this area, and prior to being reservations, a lot of indigenous people and their land in this area. Uh, 
and uh, it, which was uh, protested by uh, Nick's own grandparents. So it says here, uh, the 212-foot dam flooded 152,360 acres of reservation lands, dislocating 325 families, 80% of the tribal membership, and destroying 94% of their agricultural land. Um, this action was not taken by uh, a you know an awful group of capitalists. This action was taken by the Army National Corps. Uh, in a decision of their own, without advisement by the U.S. government, but with support of the U.S. government. Um, so this, the, uh, the reason why I bring up these two examples is because I think what we have to contextualize, which a lot of us uh, non-native folks, uh, or really just, um, I don't want to say non-oppressed, because that's wrong, but those of us who are lucky enough to have fair skin, shall I say, um, this is something that we have to understand, uh, in context of our existence. Um, things that are happening in places like Bolivia, uh, Chile, Venezuela, uh, Guatemala, Nicaragua, uh, all over the global south as well as places such as Asia and other Eastern European countries. Um, these awful atrocities against people, against workers, against, uh, citizens, um, are not exclusive to these areas. They have and continue to happen within the United States. Uh, the you know the first instance being that against the uh, indigenous of this land, then against uh, African slaves, and then against people such as Mexican immigrants, uh, European immigrants. Uh, and really just about anyone that was not a white middle-class uh, settler. Um, this, uh, this idea that uh, authoritarianism, that fascism, that uh, violence against our own citizens is this new phenomenon within the United States. Not only is that not true, but this f fascism um, that... I and many others keep calling it r really this authoritarianism uh, would be a better term uh, that continues happening within the states uh, to people such as Black Lives Matter protesters or Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. Uh, this has always been a, a practice of the United States, just not necessarily within the United States. Uh, uh, America has always been authoritarian, but they have not always practiced authoritarianism within America. Um, even though they have against certain groups, they you know it's not always been in the forefront of the general public's mind as it is right now. Um, and that's to say that even most people in this country uh, don't don't acknowledge what is happening in in this country as state violence against. The citizens they see it as a correct response to a uh, quote-unquote fascist anarchist cap or uh, communist uh, group called Antifa uh, as our president calls them um, or Antifa I, I lost my ability to do my Donald Trump voice that was bad I apologize um, but yeah, this shit is not new. And this shit has always been going on abroad. It has always been going on in the States. Um, and it has always been a direct function and practice of not only um, our government, but capitalism. Um, and as uh, Nick Estes and many other indigenous folks call it, uh, settler colonial states. Uh, this has always been a practice of dominance of... Uh, law and supposed order over the people of which the society deems as lawless and orderless. Um, this is a common tactic used by our government to motivate people to support things such as a war in the Middle East uh, in order to spread freedom and democracy and uh, save them from their savagery as we saved the indigenous of this nation.
from their own savagery. Correct, guys? Right? That's what happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's really all I got for this week, so I hope you enjoyed this. If you're still listening, I really appreciate you. I love you. Please go ahead and uh, uh, subscribe. Uh, also, follow me on social media. Um, I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Annoying Question Boy. Uh, I also do a blog, uh, which is on Annoying Question Boy, spelled just like that, no caps, no spaces, dot B-L-O-G S-P-O-T dot com. Uh, I also have YouTube, which as I have said for like the past 30 videos, I still have not posted a new video on, but there are four videos that are pretty shitty. If you want to watch them, you can do that. Um, yeah, so uh, I hope you liked it. If you did or didn't, I got a shit ton of other episodes you can listen to. Go ahead and listen to those. Um, just know also, wherever you're listening to me on, I'm also available on just about all streaming platforms. So if you have one that you would prefer, you could probably find me on there. Uh, and yeah, I hope everyone's staying safe. Uh, in this upcoming election, I think we all should come together as a people really put aside our differences you know i'm sick of this political separation that has torn families and friends apart because of who they're voting for or what name they put on their truck next to their ar-15 sticker and their blue lives matter sticker i just wish that we would all put down you know our differences and and pick up weapons and mount them against the u 